I had three or four voicemails from a number I didn't recognize in the town where I grew up in Northern California. And it was from the chief of police of that town who told me that morning my father had been found in his backyard uh, bleeding from two head wounds and that uh, he had been murdered. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Well, hello there. I just thought I'd check in with you, see how things are going, say hello. Uh, no pressing hurry, but whenever you're free, why don't you give me a call? Uh, speak to you soon. I love you. Bye. 42-year-old Eric Solomon had a special bond with his father, Bob. It was a bond that stayed rock steady from the moment he was born through his father's multiple marriages, divorces, and many children. No matter how far apart they happened to live or what Eric was going through, his dad would make sure to reach out and make it clear that he was there for him. And then all of a sudden, Bob was murdered in the backyard of his own house. The circumstances were baffling. The police investigation was mysteriously inconclusive and suddenly dropped, and several of the few people close to Bob suspected foul play. On this episode of Tell Me About Your Father, Matt talks to Eric about what he loved most about his dad, how he began to try and make sense of his father's gruesome death, and how he managed to transcend the experience and live a life of which he's confident his dad would be proud. I remember he drove this 1979 crystal clean, just gorgeous, immaculate, white, VW bug with white leather interior and a convertible. And he would come pick me up at the earliest ages. And we would, this was say on a Sunday morning, he would run a little late. So maybe Sunday afternoon, every Sunday we would drive to San Francisco, which is about 50 miles from where I grew up. And my earliest memories were riding in this ridiculous, beautiful, convertible VW bug over the Golden Gate Bridge with my dad. His name is Bob, uh, Robert, but nobody called him Robert, always Bob. He was raised in the South Bronx, and I think his biggest pride and joy and claim to fame, or at least the way that he packaged up his claim to fame, was going to Stuyvesant High School. Whenever I heard stories of him before I was born. That was a big part of his identity leading up into his teens, given that he never really advanced beyond that in his education. Then he pretty quickly got on the marriage train. And so I'm not sure there was a lot other than Stuyvesant High School and women before I was born. So I'd ask him a lot of questions about what it was like to grow up. What did he tell you? My grandfather and his father was from Romania originally. And when he moved to the U.S., spent his life as a ribbon cutter in a factory. And so had truly depression era style job. 
he didn't have beyond an eighth grade education, but was a really wise man. He was the tallest person in our family. He was probably six three or six four, and he walked into a room, and just the presence of this guy was palpable. And he spoke very little, but when he did, it was always quite short and insightful. My dad had a ton of reverence for his father. The saddest I ever saw my dad was when my grandfather passed, and that was in 1983. But I remember it pretty vividly because I think it meant so much to him. What was his your father's relationship like with your mother? I wish I had a lot to say about their relationship, but they I know that he met my mom first when she was 19 years old. They met, I believe she was working at a shoe store at the time, and he was shopping for a pair of shoes with his brother, my dad was, and they met. And I think my mom was a, a very attractive isn't everybody when they're 19? It's that glowing youth. And they were divorced by the time I was six months old. It's hard to even imagine them married. Throughout my childhood, they always had what I call a very cordial relationship. Neither of them ever said anything bad about each other. And I think my mom to this day, we're talking years and years later, still uses his last name. So I think very similar to his father, he my dad had a lot of presence. And so I think their relationship was guided by his presence. Where is your mom now? She lives in a retirement home with her wife. So my mom remarried only once. And her wife is actually 12 years older than my mom. So they live in a retirement home in Medford, Oregon. How many times did he get married? Officially, he was married, I think, six times. It was unclear whether that last wife that he was with, they officially got the ceremony to get married, but I think they did. So six times. What was the common thread with all of these women? <laughs> they all seem to have dark hair and big boobs. Okay. So like not necessarily a deep connection. I, I do remember later in my teen years asking him like, like what's with the marriage? It did seem like he... He needed that for him, it was security, maybe, or the feeling of a constant partner or commitment, wasn't it? Because he wasn't a particularly committed husband. For him, I guess it was about who the hell knows, right? What would drive anybody to get married six times? Do you think that he had a lack of respect for these women in the sense that he never talked to you about them? Yeah, I, I think so many of our relationships that we have with men or women come from the relationships that we have with our parents. And to call his relationship with his mom wonky or estranged is an understatement. It was, he really didn't respect his mom at all. And I wonder if to some extent that didn't guide his thinking or guide his approach to what he thought the role of women was. Why didn't he respect his mother? I think he, so his mom was Polish and Never worked, had about seventh grade formal education. She didn't speak a ton of English, but when she did, it was always like judgmental. <laughs> it was full of judgment. Right. She was like that kind of Polish grandmother. Also, her physical stature, she was like 4'11 and 90 pounds. Right. So it was just like, and my dad was a big guy. 
So I, I think it was just sort of this lesser person to him. What was time like with your dad when you were a teenager? I, I had a tale of two different worlds as a teenager. Unlike my mom, my dad was really uh, into food and drink and the more hedonistic things in life. She didn't really care about food. She didn't drink. She didn't do anything. And my dad on, on the, in the converse was a, a bit of a hedonist. So smoked a lot of weed, drank a lot, and really liked, even though he had pretty basic tastes, he liked good food. And he really liked, he was like, you got to eat at least three times a day. It might as well be delicious was his thing. And so we would often just go on these destination dinners and try to find something new and exciting. So a lot of our bonding was about figuring out where we wanted to eat and crafting a day around that. (laughs) Did you smoke weed with him? The first time I ever smoked weed was with him. I always knew that was a big part of his life. He didn't try to hide it. He, in his glove box, he always had some joints that he had rolled and a big bag of Hall's menthol cough drops to thinking that would maybe hide the smell on his yeah. breath. It was just such a strange, but it was always this kind of like heady smell of menthol and weed in his car. And uh, I think when I was around 14, I was, let me try some of that because I'm going to do it anyway. And I think I'd already, I knew I had friends that did it, but I was like, if I'm going to do it, I want the good stuff. Sure. (laughs) And I knew that he had the good stuff. So yeah, we, we didn't do it often together, but that was the first time I ever smoked weed. How do these dinners play out for you? You're like, what, 13? We did it throughout my childhood, but really the conversations and the chatting really started 12, 13, 14, all through high school. And yeah, it was always interesting because I was so big into record shopping. This is back when you buy physical music. I went from tapes to uh, you know, CDs. And then I was like, CDs aren't cool. I'm going to get records. And so we would go to Amoeba Records on Haight Street in San Francisco. It's like right on the end of Haight Street near the start of you know Golden Gate Park. And my dad would drop me off at Amoeba Records for two or three hours. And then he would go and probably wander around, have a drink, smoke some weed, poke around the the hate area. And then we meet up, he'd pick me up and we'd go to dinner. And yeah, he would start with a martini or so and we'd just get to talking. He didn't like small talk very much, at least with me. So he would go into really what was on his mind, what he was thinking, his childhood, his past, kind of growing up. And it was like going to dinner with a friend. He wasn't the most talkative guy, but I would ask him a lot of questions. He, he was so different from other people that I knew. What did he divulge to you? It was less about what he would say and more of what he wouldn't say. So what he never or very rarely spoke about the women in his life. And for somebody that was married as many times as he was married and the role that women played in his life, I always thought it was pretty interesting that he chose to never really talk about that. Did he ever talk to you about how you felt about relationships, perhaps if you were interested in people, even as a teenager? You know, no. I think he purposely steered away from those conversations. I think he had an idea that I wasn't into women. And I don't think he necessarily wanted to have that conversation. Not that it would upset him, but because he just felt like maybe it wasn't his place to intrude that way. He was very respectful of individuality and very supportive of creative endeavors that I would have as a kid 
and was never judgmental, was very supportive. And so I think he just was waiting for me to broach it before he would. How did your sexuality come up? I was a sophomore in college before I came out in any way, shape, or form. And I started dating a guy in college. It was that kind of college relationship where it's fun and not that serious. But I was like, it's probably a good opportunity to say, hey, I'm dating somebody. And so I just told them straight out, like, I'm dating somebody. It's a guy. And he had, he was stoic about it. He was like, expected it, I think. He never said I expected it. He was just like, that's great. What's his name? Right. You know, and it was like very nonchalant about the whole thing. So considering how erratic he was with women and also seemingly his career, it seems like he didn't have that kind of erratic presence in your life. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, it seems very inconsistent in a lot of ways with how he ran his life. But no, he kept his priorities simple, what was important to him. And it was very clear that I was incredibly important to him. Yeah, because how did you factor into the families of these stepmothers that you had? He, to some extent, uh, protected me from these other families. The longest marriage that he had was with his third wife, the one right after my mom, who was the second wife. And they were married the first time for 12 years or so. And she, this woman came to the marriage with two kids who were five and eight years older than me. And I would sleep over at you know their house. They lived in the same town as my mom which was my dad did that for a reason too. I think he wanted, didn't want to be too far from me. And I would go over to their house and we might have dinner together on occasion. I had a bedroom in the house, even though I wasn't there full time. And he'd come up with me to the bedroom and we would just play cards or games and we would shut the rest of the family out, which I'm sure pissed everybody off. But I think he was like, no, this is my time with you. And I'll go back to this other family when you're not around. How did you finally leave California and, and move to New York? It was a little bit of back and forth, but I grew up in California, went to college in Oregon, and then I spent six or so years in Boston for graduate school. And when I was ready to come back, I thought it would be a really good opportunity to spend some time with my dad. I'd been gone for a while. We'd been 3,000 miles apart. He'd come to visit once or twice, but I didn't see a lot of him during that time. So I asked if he'd be interested in flying out to drive cross country with me. I didn't have a plan at all. I just thought it would be a good opportunity. This was at a time in his life when he, a very brief period of his life where he ostensibly wasn't living with a woman or married. And so I said, I got this great idea. Why don't you come out? We'll drive cross country together. And then as I figure out what I'm going to do, I'll live with you. You know, so... A couple of weeks before he uh, was going to make the flight out to Boston, he said, listen, I'd really like some weed for the drive. I don't want to fly with it. Could you procure me some, some marijuana? And I was like, oh, it's not quite as easy as California. It's Massachusetts in the you know 2000s. But yeah, I've got connections. I can do that. How much do you want? And he said it like it was no big deal. He's like, a pound would be good. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, okay. That kind of, right. I didn't realize what scale we were working on. I was like, well, I probably can't get a pound. I can get a lot though. And I called up a bunch of people that I knew. And I, I didn't get a pound, but if I'm remembering the amount, it was probably about $1,000 worth. So he flew out to, to Boston about a three or four days before we were going to make the trip. And he was looking forward to making the trip with me. And, you know, I'd say a good 72 hours before he was like, so about that weed, 
I was like, yeah, I got it. Don't worry. And then I had this memory of him. We ordered in, got a couple of really delicious sandwiches from this place around the corner from where I was living. And he spent about, I don't know, three or four, maybe five hours systematically rolling joint after joint with all the weed that I had procured before him coming there, just filled up a gallon freezer bag of, of joints because this should get us across country. And there it went. We were just in good spirits, I think. Felt a little bit free, both of us. I was free in starting a new life in California and he was free of his fifth wife who was batshit crazy. And I'd say we, we hit the road and as soon as we got out of the Boston metro area, I said, why don't we light a few of these up and get going? And that was the start of it. And we had music playing and the windows down and it was like a Thelma and Louise kind of trip. But here it was like a whatever aged guy <laughs> and his son. You know, I think there was a different level of vulnerability. I, I think that period of time was maybe the closest we ever were. Because here I was in my mid to late 20s, I'd gotten my PhD in psychology and I'd worked at a magazine for a while and he was he felt like proud of that. And he was at a time in his life where he had just gotten a divorce from his fifth wife. So he was feeling probably a little bit more reflective. And I think he was up for a little bit of adventure. It had a real road trip feel to it. So then you move in with him. You're living with him in California when you get there. Yeah. So we make it across the country. You know, I think somewhere along the line, somewhere in the middle of the country, because I, I guess this would be a good time to tell you, Eric, he says, I'm back with Margie, who was his third wife. And I was like, excuse me? I said, so is she living with you? And he goes, not exactly. She's got her own place still, but she's over a lot and we're sussing out if we're going to get back together. So that was a little bit surprising. And I was surprised that he was waited so long to tell me that like he thought I would have a negative reaction to it, but I was more or less okay. I was glad that she wasn't living with him, but yeah, we get there and it, it's interesting because my dad is uh, not the most domestic self-sufficient guy in the world. He can make an omelet and a couple sausage and peppers. We had breakfast together every day. He'd smoke a joint and he'd roll into the office around 11, 11.30 and then be done around 6.30 or so, and we'd have dinner and wine together every night. So it was like the quality time that I had with him growing up, except it was every day for a few months. What were you doing at that time? That was probably the laziest and least employed I've ever been. I kind of just needed a break. I had just been going and going, and I was in no real hurry to worry about money at that point. Even though I didn't have any, I was just like, who cares? And I would also, I remember I would, you know, spend that time, go for some runs, go to the gym a little bit. I would look for a job a couple hours a week, but mostly spent a lot of time just kind of bopping around, not doing a whole lot. So I think I was taken after my dad's lifestyle. <laughs> I was like, who the hell is going to want to hire me? I have nothing but education. It's a bunch of useless education. and just, It'll happen. Don't worry. Just be patient. He was really supportive the whole time. And I think he let me really freeload for like three or four months before he was like, all right, why don't you hit the pavement a little harder? But it took him a long time to even have to say it. And I think by that time I was self-motivated anyway, and I got it out of my system. So he was real supportive. What was the, the next step for you. Obviously, you couldn't just live there with your dad forever. How did you move on? I got like a contract position at this a Silicon Valley company called Shutterfly. I think they're still around. They like yeah. 
Yeah. And I was like, I did like user research for them and it was an hourly job, but it paid pretty well because it's a Silicon Valley place. So I was like, I'll move to San Francisco. I'll still get to be close with my dad. And uh, I lived with a roommate in the mission district. To my dad's credit, I, I ended up having some success in the business world. I eventually made my way over to YouTube where I worked for about four and a half years, uh, I was on a creative team there. And in, yeah, in, I guess, the spring of 2015, I saw a posting. They were looking for a global director of brand for Spotify. I, I knew somebody at YouTube that had worked there. So I reached out about it. And sure enough, a recruiter reached out to me. And I remember talking to my dad about this idea of moving to New York. And of course, he was a little bit sad about the idea of me moving, but was really excited for the opportunity for me to live in New York with a different experience that he had. So moved out to New York in July of 2015 for Spotify. How was your relationship while you were on the other side? Did he come visit you? He had a trip planned to come visit me in April of 2016. And I had made it really easy for him. I knew that financially he was you know, trying to save and he didn't have a lot of money. So I, I booked him a hotel in the Lower East Side where he, I knew he really wanted to stay. He loved that area and he was just surprised that the area was thriving. And when he was in New York, it was a different thing. But I, I would talk to him frequently all through the end of 2015 and early in 2016. But then in March of 2016, I was coming back from a work trip. When I landed back in New York, I had three or four voicemails from a number I didn't recognize in the town where I grew up in Northern California. And it was from the chief of police of that town who told me that morning my father had been found in his backyard uh, bleeding from two head wounds and that uh, he had been murdered. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Thompson. We thought this was the perfect spot in this episode to take you aside to say, if you like what you're listening to, please consider becoming a Tell Me About Your Father patron. Head to patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather, where for as little as $3 a month, you can get bonus content like our Patreon-only series, Bad Dads, on which we tell you in a succinct and helpful manner why certain celebrity fathers are dreadful people. And that's in addition to the soul calming knowledge that you're helping us cover the cost of producing episodes like this one. Patreon.com slash tell me about your father. Okay, let's get back to it. What do you do when you hear that? Man, for me, I, I certainly lost control of, I just, it was just so shocking uh, and unexpected. And here I was, really bad place to, I was in the car coming back from the airport to the apartment in Brooklyn when I'm listening to this voicemail, you know, and I lost it in the car. But of course I get back and my partner Chris is, you know, in the apartment is he just knows that something's dreadfully wrong and I just collapse uh and say, I gotta go back out to California tomorrow. This is my responsibility. And then, of course, as soon as you work through a little bit of that, you realize all the tactical shit you have to do when somebody goes like that. And so I, I went into tactical mode pretty fast. And the next day I was in California. Where did you go when you got off the plane? Thing is, I, I went to the house where he had where he had been murdered. It was the last house he lived in in, in this town of Vacaville, right. California. And it's in the middle of nowhere between Sacramento and San Francisco, like right in the middle. Yep. 
And he, this is a house that he co-owned with his ex-third wife. With Margie. Margie, yeah. Chris came with me and we slept, you know, in the guest bedroom in that house, which was just horrific. If you hear that your father's been murdered, who in your mind has done this? If you look at the medical report, my father, when he had gone into the doctor that day, had said in no uncertain words that he was struck on the head by a foreign object. And you automatically think it had to have been somebody close to him. And it's hard not to go to an illogical or logical place and and think that it's somebody in the family or somebody close. I, I learned even at his ripe old age of 71, he was having affairs in that same town with other women, at least one. And so you think there's a motive there. He also was such a fish out of water there being from the South Bronx and the drugs and the all that business. What do you remember about the moment you saw him? The head injuries that he sustained left him completely with brain death. And there was nothing stated in any documents about how he wanted to die. Uh, so they kept him artificially breathing, which I didn't know was a thing. And I don't exactly know why. Again, it was... I don't know why he was kept hooked up to a tube, but it was ultimately my decision to go. I had to go to the hospital and see him not alive, but alive. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody in a state where they're clearly not alive, but they're being kept alive. They're not recognizable because their life has been sucked out of them. And so it's, it was a clear decision for me, but obviously traumatic Chris was with me, which helped, but I would say it was a a really harrowing moment for both of us. There was the choice between this state or death. There was no other option there, right? That's right. And that's not a state. So then you're staying at Margie's place. Yeah. Chris is with me, but he's got to go back and there's only so much that somebody else can do. So how was Margie that night after you had made this decision to have your father taken off life support and then you go back to her, her house. Do you remember how she behaved? You know, I wish I could say with much clarity that I do. I know, obviously, she was very upset. Of course, it's upsetting. She didn't say much. And I think I needed my space to be alone. It's notable that in retrospect, Margie, who he had been married to for 12 years and who he was back with, seemingly was incapable or not interested in making any decisions. It's hard not to question that. But at the same time, like there were decisions like, how do we want his body disposed of? Where do where does the body sent to? Is there a funeral? Is there not a funeral? And these are hard decisions to make under the best of circumstances. But here I was two days later having to make these decisions that I really didn't want to have to make in this hometown where I grew up. And then, of course, his brother pops up because I have to make these phone calls, not just to his brother, but to my half-sister. My dad had another kid with his fourth wife who I had to let know that this happened. And so we all had to gather in this town, his brother, my half-sister, me, it was, it's very surreal when I think about it. Did you have any interaction with your stepbrothers? Yeah, they were definitely around. And they had found quite a large quantity of marijuana in the garage, which the police had also found. 
but they had talked about it was still there in the garage, what we should do with it. And is that incriminating and whatnot? But they were there for Margie, not for me. How long did you spend in Vacaville? It felt like fucking five years, but I think it was probably a week. Did you do any investigating of your own? While you were there to try and make sense of this? Yeah. He had the secretary that he worked with for uh, over 30 years, this woman named Susie. And uh, this other woman that he worked with for a lot a less of a period of time named Jody. And I had to deal with a lot of the business stuff that was going on. My dad had a very complicated business life. So I'd go into the office. Of course, I got the story of the day that that this all happened. And it, it was more complicated than I thought because he had actually showed up to work a day before he was found face down on, on the path in his backyard. He had shown up to work late, bleeding from the head. He had a, a gash on the back of his head. And so of course, Susie and, and Jody, who worked with him the most, were like, hey, Bob, what's with the bleeding from your head? And why are you showing up at the office at noon? or whatever. And he gave them a story that he had just hit his head on something, which was very different from the story he told to the doctor in the medical report. And they thought that was quite odd. What was the story he told to the doctor? That he was hit in the head. And that's what they had captured in the medical report. And so there was a big discrepancy. They had seen the medical report because I had it with me. I just, because I was just running around from errands, I said, look at this. Is this what they, what he had told you? And they, they said, no. And in fact, it was quite strange because he was very dismissive. And in fact, they were the ones that kind of were like, you need to go to the doctor. <laughs> so they were instrumental in sending him to this doctor. And it's actually, it wasn't his doc. It, it just to, to make things even weirder, it's like his doctor was, playing golf that day. It was a nurse practitioner that he actually saw and uh, had given this report to. They, for whatever reason, stitched him up and sent him home. Does that trigger a police investigation? It did. That's why I had this separate call from the criminal investigator because yeah, it, it was immediately open. What did that police investigation come up with? You know, that's the thing. You want to believe that if something like this happens, a police department or anybody of integrity is going to want to do it justice and to find what the truth is. If you look at the context, Vacaville itself is a pretty conservative blue collar town. You got my my dad who is a bit of a rowdy guy in the community, known to smoke a lot of weed and drink a lot and from New York and fast and loose. And I, I got this feeling of We'll look into it. And, and you're like, it, it's interesting. My partner's dad is a criminal defense attorney. So I was like, I should call him for help. And he had a talk with the investigator as well and was like, yeah, it was very strange. It was just very dismissive. Like they didn't really care. And ultimately, and we're talking ultimately about two and a half years after the case was open, through my own urging, I find out that the case has been closed due to lack of evidence and the case is dismissed. I wonder how common that is for something this extreme to just be like, throw your hands up. Oh, don't know anything that we didn't get enough evidence. I hate to make this about race, but I think it's really common in African-American. I was going to say, he yeah. was a white man. It's, exactly. if, were, if it was a black man, you'd be like, oh, I get it. Yeah. But it's, all, it's almost like they wanted to avoid it for other reasons. You can't help but to be like, he wasn't a member of a church. In fact, he's Jewish. Even though he was a businessman, he was not a prominent guy in the town. They're probably like, this is just not worth it. 
which is so hard to say or so hard to think, but you're, or they just weren't equipped to do it because I don't know how much real training you need to be investigative police person in a small town in California. Yeah. You must have theories on who did this. What do you think is the most likely explanation? You know, it's true. I think you're right. There are all kinds of possible theories. I think though, and this isn't meant to dodge the question in any way. I just think though that I'm not going to know. There is a truth that I'm not going to know. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories because what good is that going to do for me? Because I'm not going to know. And so it's much easier for me to say, yeah, I think that there was something nefarious and foul going on, but what is my knowing that going to do for me? And what would I do with that information at this point? You must have been angry about it. There's so much written about the stages of grief that people go through. And anger is a big part of it. And denial is a big part of it. And bargaining and all the other stuff. But there gets to be a point where, you know, especially in, in more recent models of grief, where it goes beyond just accepting that something happened, but rather it's like, how do you go about creating meaning from it? So the way that I've gotten there is to completely reevaluate my life. And I'm 43, I'll be 44, and thinking about what precious time I have left and how I want to spend every fucking day of my life. And so my way of coming to peace with it is to say the gift that I got from the mess of this is clarity on focus for me. And that's pretty awesome. Did you have a funeral for him? No, I, I don't think I've said this out. I've never been to a funeral. Is that weird that I've never been to a funeral? I think it's a little weird. I mean, they're not, you know, fun. So I don't know what one is supposed to look like. But more than that, my dad was an introverted, private person in a lot of ways. He didn't have a lot of friends on purpose. I asked him why he didn't have a lot of friends because I do. I like people a lot. It's not like I have a lot of friends, but I know a lot of people and it's like, it's important to me, community and people. And he would say, I don't have a lot of friends because people will always disappoint you in the end. And I was like, that's a really fucking negative way of looking at it, which for him was really strange. I mean, he was a very optimistic person. So a funeral just didn't seem right. And so I made a decision to have him cremated, Okay, uh, which is, it's just such a, it's such a weird thing to say. It's like burning somebody to ashes. Is that common in the Jewish community? Yeah. I don't know if it is or not. My mom also, she has that in her will that she wish, wants to be cremated. So maybe it is a Jewish thing. I don't know. I'm a bad Jew. Anybody that's ever dealt with a funeral home is you quickly go from like the most important thing that's happened to you, you know, the loss of a loved one to the most tactical, <laughs> like transactional conversations. Literally, if you're going to talk caskets, it's, do you want the low, the medium or the high? Right. So, and it's the same with the cremation. They're like, do you want the golden urn? And I'm like, no, I don't want the golden urn. They're like, how would you like to store them? You're like, a styrofoam cooler seems, I don't know. You start to be like, really? This is the conversation? Yeah. But then you're like, okay, so now where do you want this stuff sent? And I'm like, shit, it's not just me. At the time, regardless of how I felt about Margie or her family being involved or not being involved, I was like, she's right there in the room with me. So I guess a third goes to you. My sister, my half sister's in the room with me while we're making this. I'm like, I guess a third goes to you and I'll take the other third. So what did you do with them? They came in a, so unceremoniously, 
in like a UPS package with you could see a little bit of like kind of ash dust on the outside of it. It was really, really morbid because <laughs> you know, it's like the bag had maybe broke a little bit inside the box. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck to do with this. So I put it under this console in this room on a towel in this box and it sat there for a while. And at some point I was like, I got to get this out of the house. So there's this beautiful cemetery here in Brooklyn, the Greenwood Cemetery. It's gorgeous, big, huge. And Chris and I took this box, you know, this leaking box in a bag and up on the top of Greenwood Cemetery, found a nice tree and dumped him out overlooking Brooklyn. And so, right next to Leonard Bernstein. And- yeah, exactly. It was a pretty cool place to do it. And and not only that, but this was like, I think this was the, the top where it was like all the, it was like the top of Greenwood Cemetery. So it was really a prime spot and it's illegal, I think, to do that. So I hope I don't get in trouble for, I don't think you're allowed <laughs> to do that, but good luck. Good luck finding the ashes now. Yeah. That was a while. And if the police show up, maybe you could tell them to spend some time on your father's death. So how did you get from where you were at his death to this reevaluated place that you were in now. Mm. I I ended up losing it. I really don't remember how I behaved or acted during the time after I got back from California, but I ended up actually getting fired from Spotify a few months later as if that there wasn't enough stress going on. I had a really good reputation at Google, so I went back to Google and had a big job there for a while. And then I I really spent the last, up until 2018, taking on bigger and bigger jobs that you could argue I was never qualified for, but I looked good on paper. I was the global head of business marketing for Instagram. So I led big marketing team remotely from New York. And then I became a chief marketing officer. So a C-suite job at a a clothing company called Bonobos owned by Walmart. And I really hated these jobs. I just want to be clear for any, anybody that thought I was getting any enjoyment. I took them for the titles and the ego and the money and just to, to plow through. When I finally, it was, I was on vacation actually, and I was in Mexico with, and we were, this is around Thanksgiving in 2018. And I probably had a tequila or two too many or just enough. And I was like swimming in a pool. Yeah. And I, I, I just had this clarity. And I don't know if other people have experienced it. I, I had never experienced anything remotely clear <laughs> before. It was like, I'm going to quit, not just this job, but the corporate world. I'm going to like walk away from this bullshit rat race because it's not who I am. And I think who I am is somebody that wants to forge my own path. And sure enough, I did. In 2019, I created my own company and it's focused on the stuff that's most meaningful to me. I get to plan the days how I want to spend them, which includes being able to take time to do shit like this. And to some extent, this life feels way truer, not just to me, but I know my path always really befuddled my dad. He was like supportive of it, but he's wow, you're working at these big companies. Like you have these big jobs. He never had those jobs. And he was like, I guess that's what you want to do. But I think he would be so proud of this entrepreneurial thing I'm doing and surviving and thriving in. But it was all just this moment of clarity. And I reevaluated what makes me tick and spent some time trying to divide, devise life around that. So that's what you're left with. You don't know what happened to your father. You have some ideas, but you can't ever get answers to them. So you're left with this kind of metamorphosis that you experienced. 
Yeah, uh, left with that, I think that's a nice way of putting it, left with that and also left with the openness that I came from this place of logic in a lot of ways. I got my PhD is in quantitative psychology, very mathematical. It's like truth, black or white, yes or no. And I think the thing that I've gained from all of this is the embracing of a tremendous amount of gray. And that gray can be found even in places where you think there's certainty. And that openness is what I gained from this experience. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. Want to tell us about your father? Follow us and send us a message at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook, or call us at 1-888-318-DADS and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Also, check out Daddy Issues, our bonus Dads in Pop Culture Patreon podcast. Find it and more at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum. <laughs>